Now we're turning tonight in our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 13. If you were here last week, um, we were looking at the Lord Jesus as he washed the disciples' feet in preparation for the cross, a demonstration of his love for them. And you remember, it just came to me as we were sitting down at the back, how the Lord said that he needed to wash our feet continually, but Peter objected um, and Jesus said, look, if I don't wash you completely, you can have nothing in me. So we had a demonstration last week, you remember, of washing uh, of feet. And this week we've had a demonstration of the bath. And so you've had a demonstration both evenings. It's wonderful. And we wish our brother well uh, in the will of God. And we know he will be blessed for obeying the Lord in the waters of baptism. We're going to read together verse 18 uh, through to 35 of John chapter 13, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, and the title of my message tonight is Love and Betrayal. So John 13, verse 18. I do not speak, Jesus says, concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him, for some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen. Let us pray together. And as I said previously, if you know and love the Lord, do enter in to prayer with me that God will speak tonight through his word to meet every need, whatever that may be. So let us all pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the record of the life and ministry of our Lord. We thank you for what we have witnessed tonight demonstration of obedience to the Lord Jesus. And it's reminding us already of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we thank you 
for our brother Philip, who has been baptized. And Lord, we pray that you will bless him. And dear God, that he will know what it is to walk in obedience and the joy of it. Happy are you if you do these things, the Lord Jesus said. And Lord, we do pray that you protect him from the enemy because we know that our Lord, when he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, pointing to the cross, in Mark, Matthew chapter 3, it wasn't very long. We read it in Matthew 4 that he was tempted of the devil in the wilderness. We know that, Lord, the devil and his demons detest when we make a public confession of our Lord. And so we pray that you will protect our brother and indeed us all as we seek to live for Christ. And we pray that you will speak to us now and that you will minister to each of our needs. Lord, we all have need of you. There might be unbelievers in the place tonight. We pray by your Spirit you will speak on through the Word. There might be those cold in their faith, those who are struggling, Lord. We know we all struggle at times. Lord, we pray that you'll speak whatever our circumstances might be for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And most of all, we pray that you will present yourself with us now. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. I did say to you last Sunday evening that these chapters from chapter 13 right to chapter 17 comprise of what's called his upper room ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ has met with his disciples to celebrate the Passover and institute the Lord's Supper. And uh, John gives us a record that no other gospel writer gives of the ministry that he shared with them there. And it ends, of course, with this Chapter 17, the intercessory prayer, which has come to be known as the great high priestly prayer of Christ. It is the countdown to Calvary. It is the last week of the life and ministry of our Lord. Some call it Holy Week. Uh, I think I said last week that this is probably Thursday. I should have said it was Wednesday late, probably the early hours of Thursday morning of that last week. And in verse 18 through to 30, Jesus had just washed his betrayer's feet, along with the other 11. Judas got his feet washed. And we know that the Lord Jesus had knowledge. He wasn't ignorant of what Judas had in his heart and what was his intention to betray. We read in verse 2, chapter 13, And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus was in complete knowledge. And yet, all that he knew about Judas, he did not reveal Judas's secret in this portion that we read tonight. He certainly addressed him and addressed the company, but he did not declare who was the betrayer. Jesus, with the towel in his hand, is the perfect example of humility. We saw that last Sunday evening. And now Jesus, with the bread, Again, is the perfect example of humility. But Judas, with the bread given into his hand by Jesus, is the perfect example of hypocrisy and treachery. What a juxtaposition, a comparison between these two. Now, Judas, of course, we know from Mark's gospel, has been solving the problem of the chief priests and scribes. They wanted to betray Jesus at an opportune moment that would not cause public unrest. 
And so Judas betrays Jesus secretly the dead of night into their hands. Now, I want you to understand something. We talked this morning about friendship and what true friendship was from John chapter 11. To betray someone is not the same as being their enemy. It's a great misunderstanding many have. You see, the essence of betrayal is that you can betray to death and yet still show a measure of affection toward the one you're betraying. Essentially, betrayal comes from the hand of a friend. That's what makes it betrayal. Someone has put it like this, a betrayer embraces you with one arm and stabs you in the back with the other. And here we have the greatest betrayer of all time who was essentially a friend to the greatest man of all time, Jesus Christ. I want you to note something. Judas professed to be a friend of Christ. And I believe that the greatest betrayers of Christ today are still those who profess to be his friends. You see, you can be affectionate toward the Lord Jesus Christ, but ultimately in your heart and even in your actions and your secret life being betraying him. I want you to consider this evening the privileges that Judas had. It's remarkable when you look at this character. He was a privileged man. The first reason, he heard Christ's words. Now, we've got the delight of reading his words. I highlighted those that might be in red in your edition of the Bible. But imagine what it would have been like to have heard those words originally spoken firsthand from Jesus himself. Imagine uh, sitting on the hillside listening to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. First time the Beatitudes were spoken from God incarnate. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The golden rule, as it's called, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Imagine being there. Imagine being there when, when the Lord Jesus taught the parables of the Good Samaritan, for instance, or the story of the prodigal son. Imagine being there when some of the disciples came to the Lord Jesus and said, teach us to pray, even as John taught his disciples to pray. And Jesus said, in this manner, pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy you know the rest. But Imagine hearing it for the first time. You could say it in your sleep. But imagine being there when no one had ever heard anything like this before. Judas heard Christ's words. He sat on the edge of the crowd when he taught the great multitudes. And then he was in the private audience of Christ in the wayside during the twilight hours where the disciples were instructed personally by Jesus. And yet Judas himself never truly believed. Remarkable, isn't it? He did not know Christ by faith himself. We could go as far to say he knew Jesus personally, but he did not know him savingly. That's an interesting one. Because you could be here tonight and you know Jesus personally in the sense you know about him. You know as much as the rest. You perhaps went to Sunday school, Bible class. You might have been catechized or whatever they do in your particular tradition of Christianity. And you feel that you are familiar with this man, this 
God-man. You might go as far to say that he is the Savior and the Savior of the world. But though you know him personally, in that sense, you don't know him savingly. He has not saved you. Judas heard Christ's word. See something else. Judas saw Christ's miracles. He was there when the lad brought his lunchbox, five loaves and two fish, and the Lord Jesus took it and blessed it and multiplied it, fed 5,000 people besides women and children. Judas was on board the boat when Jesus stood up and stilled the storm miraculously, and they were left saying, Who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so Judas, Judas saw Jesus give blind eyesight, deaf ears hearing, dumb tongues speech, lame legs able to walk and leap and dance. In fact, Judas saw Christ raise the dead. We saw that this morning, John 11, Lazarus, and other occasions. You could say Judas lived a diet of daily miracles, but he never had the miracle of new birth wrought in his heart. He was not born again. Maybe you're here tonight and you believe in the supernatural. You'd do well to believe in it because it's real. The way God does things. Maybe you've even seen the supernatural. Perhaps a miracle has been performed in your own life or in someone that you love. Maybe it was a time when there was a great crisis in your experience, in your family, and you prayed, and God heard your prayer. And you will have no one explain it away. You know God answered prayer, and yet you have never had this miracle of the new birth in your heart. Judas heard Christ's words. He saw his miracles. But thirdly, see, he, he saw Christ save others. He saw the woman at the well, John chapter 4, a couple of chapters before this. She was married five times. The guy she was living with was not her husband. She was trying to satisfy the aching, empty void in her soul with relationships and sex. Jesus said, I'll give you water. She was at a well, but I'll give you spiritual living water. And if you drink of it by faith, you'll never thirst again. And she did. And it says she went into her hometown and she told many of the men and many believed in Samaria. But Judas didn't. Judas was there when the madman of Gadara, who no one could control, society had given up on, and they'd put him in their equivalent to a padded room, just in the side of a hill where there were graves. Nobody went near the graveyard, and they chained him up there, but he wouldn't even stay in the chains. And Jesus came, and Jesus delivered that man of thousands of demons, and he was left seated at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And Judas saw it but was unaffected by the power of God himself. Judas saw the tax collector, little Zacchaeus, repenting. He lined his pockets with the taxes that he'd stolen off the people on the behalf of Rome, and he was hated by everyone. And yet salvation came to that little man's house, and he repaid fourfold everything that he had thieved, and he gave half of his goods to the poor. But even that didn't move Judas from his sin. You're here tonight and you've seen people's lives change. Maybe they're sitting beside you. 
or folk in your family or in the neighborhood or in the workplace, folk who come to this church. But like Judas, you remain unchanged. He heard Christ's teachings. He saw his miracles. He saw Christ save others. But see also, and this is the most staggering, I think, to me, he did Christ's work. That's right. We read that the Lord Jesus sent the disciples out to spread the word of the kingdom. And he had 70 disciples and he split them into twos and he sent them preaching the gospel. And when they returned, they they proclaimed, even the spirits, Jesus, are subject to us in your name. And I don't believe that Judas was an exception to that. I believe that Judas was engaged in the work of God. I believe that Judas was even performing miracles in the name of Christ. And yet, he had rejected God's own work in his heart. Maybe you find that staggering. But we read in the Gospels that on Judgment Day, Jesus says, Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out devils in your name? Did I not do many mighty works? The word is miracles in your name. And Jesus says, I will say to you, Depart from me, I never knew you. And the reason he gives in qualifying that statement is, you did not obey the word of God. You didn't truly repent and believe. You could be a minister in a church, pastor, an elder. You could be a Sunday school teacher and not be born again. And our churches, sadly, are greatly affected by this. It's not a new phenomenon. In 1735, John Wesley, who later became the founder of Methodism, set out as a missionary to Georgia in a colony of America. And he was an ordained uh, Anglican minister, as was his father before him. And two years into his missionary work, this is what he said, I went out to convert the Indians, but, O oh God, who shall convert me? What a statement. Engaged in the work of God. But a work of grace had never been done in his life. Do you know, this is a real evangelical problem. False profession. People who grew up in the ranks of a church and just sort of slip into the way of doing things. and They know how to pray. They know intellectually about Jesus and what he has done. But they have never truly been born again. That's by simple faith, childlike faith. A child can do it. We've got to make sure we've entered into such an experience. It's generally agreed today, right across the whole spectrum of the evangelical church, that this is a problem. Late Bill Bright of Campus Crusade said, many who call themselves Christians are not really biblical Christians at all. Although they may be religious people who attend church regularly, they have never experienced the new birth and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Dr. Rod Bell, president of the Fundamentalist Baptist Fellowship of America, believes that 50% of people that go to church are lost. The evangelist, Louis Pelot, said, of 80% of Americans who claim to be Christian, few live any differently from pagans or atheists as though God has no claim on their lives. And Dr. James 
Dobson, the Christian psychologist, admitted, the majority of Americans are dabbling in religious expression that has no substance. Can I say to you, particularly the young people here tonight, make sure that you are genuinely born again. It's horrifying to hear some Christian leaders say of their young people, and I'm not so young, that if you sat them down and asked them, give me the gospel in a nutshell, they, they can't tell it. Now, I know Judas was ordained to this role, and there's great mystery here, and I don't claim to understand it. We see it prophesied there in verse 18, quoting Psalm 41, verse 9. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. It's great mystery the sovereignty of God in this matter. But I have to say to you tonight, I do not believe in any form of God's sovereignty that nullifies man's responsibility. Though God is obviously sovereign in this regard, and it baffles us, I am sure that Judas is guilty and complicit in this crime. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I believe the Lord was giving every opportunity for Judas here to show that Judas was responsible and was complicit. And Judas had made choices all the way through his time with Christ. Imagine the grace of our Lord here. He had just washed the disciples' feet and his betrayers to boot. What humility! And see the depravity of Judas. He had his feet washed by Christ. He knew the plan that was already hatched in his heart to conveniently betray Christ. And yet he went through with it. Judas knew he was the one Jesus was speaking of. Verse 22 says the disciples were aghast. The disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. Judas was not aghast. I don't think for a moment that the disciples doubted themselves thinking that one of the, that I might, they weren't saying personally, I might be the one, I might be the traitor. Because it wasn't long before this and indeed after this event that they were arguing among themselves who would be the greatest. Rather, they were contemplating among the others who was the worst. We read from Mark, they were saying, is it I? Is it I? And, and the inference there is, surely not me. Surely not me. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Verse 26, we read, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Now, to break bread with someone in these ancient days was a token of fellowship, a pact of friendship, of mutual trust. And so it was the most wicked treachery to break bread, to have fellowship with someone, and for them to go and betray you. David said prophetically of this moment, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. How tragic. How must the Lord of glory have felt? 
Verse 27, when Judas received the bread dipped in bitter herbs, we read that Satan entered him. Then he left to notify the chief priests where Jesus could be found, setting off the chain of events that would lead to Calvary, the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to see this, please. Verse 27, Jesus said to him, Satan entered him. Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. In everything, the Lord Jesus is in complete knowledge and in compliance with the purposes of God to go to the cross, to bleed and die. We saw this last Sunday evening, that when the Lord washed the disciples' feet, he gave himself wholly and completely to it, laying off his garments, girding himself with a towel, washing their feet, having poured out the water, drying their feet with a towel, and then sitting down. He is in control. He has complete knowledge of what is going to happen, that the Father has given all things into his hands, where he's going, and what he's going to do. Wonderful. Now, I've got to say to you tonight that I don't believe that Judas set out to betray the Lord in the beginning. I believe Satan noted that he was acquiring a taste for a secret sin. You see, he was appointed treasurer. We get a hint of this in verse 29. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. We know that Judas was a thief from the beginning. If you go back to chapter 12, um, the incident, it hasn't been dealt with yet, but the incident of Mary of Bethany anointing the Lord's feet and took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus. The monetary value of this would have been about a year's wages. And Judas protests, verse 5, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. This was his secret sin. This gave, humanly speaking, This gave Satan a foothold in his life that became a stronghold that ultimately allowed him to eventually betray the Lord. Can I ask what your secret sin is that might cause you eventually to betray Jesus? J.C. Ryle that famous evangelical bishop of Liverpool said, open sin has killed its thousands, but secret sin its tens of thousands. That's why Mark says in Mark 14, 11 of this very event, he sought how he might conveniently betray him. We can conveniently betray the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're one who professes to be his friend. Sure, most people in our province and indeed this island call themselves Christians some shape or form. You might have heard his words, saw his miracles, saw him save others. You might even be doing his work of a kind, but you're betraying him. But we've got to move on. What a contrast we find in verse 34 and 35. We've seen the greatest example of betrayal, and now we see the greatest exhortation of love. Verse 35, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you, you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, how is this a new commandment? You know, did the Old Testament not teach people to love each other? Of course it did. Uh, did Jesus before this moment in his parables and teachings and example not teach to love one another? Well, yes, he did. But the ancient Greek word here for new in verse 34, it, it implies freshness, a freshness in this command or the opposite of being outworn. So this is not a different commandment but a reiteration in freshness of an old commandment. It isn't that this commandment to love one another has just been invented, but rather it's going to be presented in a new and in a fresh way. And here it is. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You have to love one another as I have loved you. Now, the Old Testament taught, love your neighbor as yourself. But now this new law says, love your brother even more than yourself to the very point of death. Laying your life down for one another. So the command to love wasn't new, but the extent of the love here was new, and it was being displayed in the life of Jesus, washing the disciples' feet. But as that was a figure of going to the cross, this would be demonstrated in the greatest way ever. Romans 5 and verse 8. God has demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus says that's the way you've got to love one another. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself forth. But it's not confined to marriage. Wives, you're to love your husbands like that. Brothers, you're to love brother and sister. Sister, you're to love sister and brother like that. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Verse 35. This is to be the distinguishing mark of all true believers. Now, if you want more on this, John elaborates it in his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John at the end of the New Testament. 1st John alone, he teaches, one who loves his brother abides in the light. He teaches one who loves his brother, God abides and dwells in him. But one who doesn't love his brother cannot love God. But because of God's love in our hearts, one should love his brother. And so, again, he is emphasizing this truth that love is the mark of the fellowship of true believers. And that means all other criteria are secondary. A lawyer came to the Lord on one occasion and said, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And to the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he agreed with that because that's what all the Jews believed. This was indeed the sum total 
of the whole of the law and the prophets. And so the Lord established love as the highest of all spiritual virtues. Ultimately, first and foremost, love toward God, but whenever that's in the right place, then love to one another. The law and the prophets are summarized in this. In other words, this is what the Bible is all about. We had an interesting book not that long ago by an author called Gail D. Irwin. The book's called The Jesus Style, and it talks about living life as the Lord Jesus did in our lifestyle. She quotes from these verses, a new commandment I give to you, and this is what she says. Listen carefully. It's remarkable. I was shocked, she says, to find that such a statement was missing from the great doctrinal statements of denominations, missing from the great systematic theologies, missing from the creedal statements, and most unfortunate, missing from our daily life. This great commandment that summarizes the whole of the Bible that is personified in the manifestation of God incarnate is missing. And it's the very characteristic that we ought to have that distinguishes us to the people in the world as belonging to God. In fact, Paul said, and we don't have time to look out of 1 Corinthians 13 without love, the love of God, you're nothing. It doesn't matter what you do, you can give your body to martyrdom. But without love, you're nothing. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, said, we are as we love, not as we know. Great evangelical problem is we can't get past our brains. especially those of us who are well-schooled in the Scriptures. We are as we love, not as we know. Calvin said, whatever is devoid of love is of no account in the sight of God. He's just saying what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, everything is nothing. It's more than this. This very love does not just identify us as belonging to Jesus, but it actually witnesses the life of Jesus to those around. It testifies of him, Francis Schaeffer said, love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave to Christians to, to wear before this world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Now, almost every denomination you will go to, irrespective of where it is, they have their own little list of criteria that defines them. And I'm not saying all of them, but many of them tend to look down at those that don't match their criteria. We need to be very careful we don't transgress a command of the Lord here when he says it is love that distinguishes us as brothers and sisters, and it is that love between one another that will actually, and you read it in 1 John, this is a remarkable statement, the love that we share with one another will actually prove God's existence 
and that Christ came in the flesh as the manifestation of God. It is, that's how powerful our love among each other can be. But what do they see? Come on now. What does the world see? I mean, just take Northern Ireland for an example. What does the average Joe Bloggs out there say? Doesn't go to church. Doesn't have any Christian background. And you mention religion or Christianity as, as they conceive of it. What, what are their immediate thoughts? Do they see us bickering amongst one another, fighting amongst one another? Do they identify it with politics? Do they see us as, rather than loving one another, seeking to maximize the faults of the other? Proverbs says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Listen, this is a remarkable statement, and I want it to be indelibly burned on your consciousness. The only aggression a Christian should be known for is aggressive love. Thomas Fuller made a remarkable statement that I've been thinking about all, all week. Listen to this. If God should have no more mercy on us than we have charity one to another, what would become of us? Let me repeat that. If God should have no more mercy on us, in other words, if he should remove all his grace and protection and care of us, and the only thing he leaves us is the love that we have for one another to look after each other, what would happen to us? Would we become like the dodo? Describing first century Christians to the Roman Emperor Hadrian, Aristides said, listen, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who will hurt them. If they have something, they will give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he was a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers and sisters in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit in God. Is that the way we live? And not just among our kind, by the way. Jesus said that tax collectors love tax collectors, and you love people that are like you. You're not any better than they. Franz Havner said, Tertullian writes that it was said of early Christians, how those Christians love one another. Today, the world might sometimes be more inclined to say how those Christians hate each other. A new commandment I give to you. Oh, we obeyed the commandment tonight, didn't we? Commandment of the Lord, be baptized. We've got to do it. We obeyed the commandment of the Lord this morning to break bread and drink from the cup and remember the Lord in his death. What about this one? Love as I have loved you. Love is practical or it's not love at all. You might be able to tell me the four Greek words for love. That's wonderful. 
But practically, love rolls its sleeves up. There was once a professor who wrote a very learned book on love. The only defect was the professor had never been in love. And when he took the manuscript to the typist to prepare uh, for the publisher, the typist turned out to be this very lovely young lady. And when their eyes met, something happened to the professor which was not in his book. And he was happier in five minutes with love in his heart than he had been in 30 years with love in his head. There's something that needs to happen to 21st century Christianity here in our country. We need a revival of unconditional true love. Amongst one another and to those outside, he commands us to love. But as I close, maybe you would just turn to one verse. He not only commands us, and know this, Jesus and God never command us to do a thing in the new covenant that we cannot do, and he does not empower us to do. In Romans 5, verse 5, as I said last week, washing people's feet does not come naturally, whether we do it literally or metaphorically, helping people and ministering to people. It doesn't come naturally. It's supernatural. Equally so, this love, you look at 1 Corinthians 13, it is agape love. It is the very love of God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And he commands it, but he gives the power. He enables it. Romans 5, verse 5, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out or shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's the Holy Spirit that gets you born again. And it's the Holy Spirit who fills your heart with love. And if you want this love, you need to get it from God. I know that there's probably no one here like Judas. Is there anyone like Judas? There might be someone who's professing to be a friend of Christ, but you're betraying him. Will you be a true friend tonight? And will you repent and confess your sin and come to the cross and become his true friend by obeying him and being saved and allow the Spirit of God to come into your life? Maybe you're a Christian and you truly want to know this love. Come to the same place, the Lord Jesus and his cross and repent of sin and and lack of love, and maybe bitterness, or jealousy, or strife. You maybe need to forgive someone for hurting you. I'm not asking you to say that what they did was correct. You're not even meant to condone something that's wrong, but maybe you have to let go of that thing and give it over to God, as Jesus did. He gave over to his Father who judges righteously, Peter says, all the wrongs that were done to him. Judgment is mine, saith the Lord. You have to do that tonight and let God, maybe if you don't let go of that bitterness, God cannot fill your heart with this love. 
Let us all pray. Is there someone here tonight and you, you really want to engage with God in this regard? You want to be saved. Maybe some of you young people. Now, I don't want to do the devil's work and cause you to doubt your salvation. But if you're not sure, make sure. Maybe you're not so young. Maybe you know that something's missing. You're not filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not controlling. You're not completely surrendered. You're not producing fruit to the Spirit of God. Maybe you're not showing love. Who here tonight will surrender and say, Lord, come in and pour in this love into my heart that I might obey your commandment? I need to do that. I don't think I could love any of you on the day. Maybe one or two of my own family. That's really pushing it, isn't it? Because we love ourselves so much. Father, I thank you for your voice. I thank you for the Holy Scriptures, but for the Holy Spirit who still makes them living and powerful and applies them to our own hearts. Lord, may we heed your voice tonight and may we learn, oh Lord, we can get everything so right. We baptize tonight, Lord, and we believe that this is the way to do it, but Lord, how much time and energy do we grapple in our minds and with our hearts and wills with loving each other? And at times loving each other when we are most unlovable. Loving people that we don't agree with. Blessing those who cursed us. Praying for those who despitefully scheme and abuse us. Lord, I can't do that. but you can do it through me. And I pray that all of us here tonight will surrender and allow self to die, reckon it dead on the cross as we've identified it here tonight as being dead and buried. And may you live in and through us for the glory of Christ, we pray, that others may see him and glorify God, his Father in heaven. Amen.